Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday afternoon, <clears throat> middle of the afternoon. And I'm going to do the, the podcast uh, bio today. Happens to be <clears throat> today is being sponsored by uh, Zev Raiden, Zev Raiden and family, because it's the father's first yard site, Alex Raiden's first yard site. And Zev and I were considering who to do to talk about. And then it occurred to me last night to his father, whose yard site is today, was one of, you don't see, the Schneider boys. That is to say, he was there with Schneider's yeshiva for a while after the war, as we shall see. And I don't think most people in America even know what I'm talking about. It could be, for all I know, even in England, they're not too sure anymore. Um, let alone elsewhere. Some of Moshe Schneider is a person from yesteryear. And uh, that's how I want to talk about today. Um, and you'll see how it intersects with the life of the nifter of, uh, of Alex Radin who we all in Baltimore knew very well. Uh, so let me get down to business. I'm talking about Ramosha Schneider, uh, who lived to be about 70, so my 1885, 1955, something like that. You know, those years, early, let's put it, early, first day of the 20th century. <clears throat> a very unusual character. Character is the word for him. He was a character. Now, as you'll see what I mean in a second. I would, in my opinion, I would identify him, classify him, the first of the uh, BT yeshivas. And I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I mean it in a good way. First, Balshavi yeshivas, which has become somebody, such a ubiquitous part of the Lithuanian yeshiva world in my lifetime. Even though, theoretically, the Lithuanian yeshivas, being so elitist, always have kind of a conflicted sort of attitude towards that. So let me get down to brass tacks. <clears throat> Our hero was a real Litvak, born near Vilna in the 1880s, you know, in that time, from a very from background. You know, the parents were poor. All of his life, this guy was poor. Because he, he wanted to be. And, you know, that type, not interested in mumming. And uh, from parents and all that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, and he, when he's a kid, he goes to learn around Bar Mitzvah time uh, in Vilna itself. Uh, there they had a high school that's run by Rabbi Shlomo Cohen, I, I think I spoke about him, you know, the Cheshach Shlomo, the chief rabbi of Vilna, he's the guy that received uh, Theodor Herzl. And, but he was, you know, a tremendous gong. If it's to be the Abbas in Vilna, it just tells you everything. And now listen closely. This is a young guy who's 14, 15, 16, that kind of years. I don't remember why, but it didn't work out wherever he was. Uh, I think he tried to go to Slobodka or something. He tried to go mainline regular yeshiva route. <clears throat> Didn't quite work out. Instead, he went very from yeshiva route, slightly different. <clears throat> he went to a place where there was a much smaller group, Varnava. Not that you know where that is or whatever. It's a river in, in right Russia, Lithuania. It's all in the area of Vilna, Minsk, Rodin, and all that sort of thing. All those areas are not far from each other. And that's where he learned in a very from environment. 
And I don't know exactly how, but he, got, he had connection with the Chafetz Chaim. So we're talking around the age of 1900, 1905. Chafetz Chaim was Betokfo, and the Rodney Yeshiva was a reality, and the Chafetz Chaim was the Chafetz Chaim. And by the way, the years I'm talking about <clears throat> were unusually productive years in the life of the Chafetz Chaim. That's where he turned out the Mishnah Bura, that's where he, which itself is gigantic, and the thing on the Torah's Kahnem, the Kachim stuff, you know, that's when he was rocking. And so our hero had like shakas with him, and apparently became, they all say in the biographies, now I never heard of Moshe Schneider until 40 years ago, I don't know why. When they had that old book from um, Saraski, my bits of Torah Musser, I'm going back to my youth, you know, uh, he used to write all these biographies, semi-hagiographical, three-quarters hagiographical, but it doesn't matter. The Moshe Schneider does not hagiographical, it's, it's true. And, um, this was, a, in certain sense, the golden age of Litvich. He was before First World War. He wasn't exactly part of that. Didn't learn in Tells, didn't learn in Slobodka, didn't learn in Kamenets, and so forth. But he learned where he learned, in a kibbutz, you know, as they used to call it. And he got close to the Chavetz Chaim, and he, I guess you'd say, hero worshipped the Chavetz Chaim for the rest of his life. And as a result, he was a Mishnah Bura guy, he was a Sefer Chavetz Chaim guy, and so forth. But he also learned up a storm. <coughs> Now, here's where the interesting part comes and makes him a historical figure. Uh, here's somebody who's not married. Um, he's about 20 years old, approximately. It's 1905. He's born 1805, 1885, 1884. You never know what these dates, you know, these delay for all kinds of reasons. And um, the Russian-Japanese war breaks out and everybody's getting drafted. He don't want to get drafted. I don't blame him. And so he flees over the border, to Mamel. Now, it's hard to explain, to some, unless you have a, some knowledge of history, and especially geography, uh, it's not the easiest thing to explain, but I'll try, but standing on Regalachas. Once upon a time, the map of Europe looked different. If you want to have any idea what I'm talking about, just Google a map of Europe in 1900 or 1914. Okay? A color map of Europe in 1914. And you'll see that there were two countries next to each other, both of which are empires. On the one hand, the Tsarist Russian Empire, and the other hand, the German Empire under the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm. Okay? And Germany was bigger than it is today. And especially how would they call Prussia was like two fingers, almost like, like a, a, a kind of a V, right? In a horizontal sense. Uh, the top finger is going across the Baltic coast, now it's called Prussia. And the other one was called Silesia. So, what I'm trying to say is the German border, the German Empire, went right up to Lithuania, and the border town was Memel, which today is called Klaipeda, that's the Lithuanian name. I think it was Lanter's buried there, and uh, I had a nephew in Israel who was there for Kira once, as a couple. And the point is that it was literally cheek to cheek with the, with the Lithuanian border, so one side is the Russian Empire, the Heinolita, and the other side is already Germany. There's a great book, which I'll have to do one time, uh, from Mayor Barry Lynn, the son of the sea who founded the Mizrahi movement, where he talks about his young child crossing the border from Lithuania into Germany on his way to Berlin. There's a child. It's a culture shock, because the Russia, everything dirty, messy, unkempt, and, you know, it's a flagon. As soon as you come come across the border. This was Germany under the Kaiser. Everything masudder, clean, hygienic, 
organized. Even the Yiddish guy, very organized, you know. And so our hero uh, sneaks over the border, but it's not that far away. You understand? It's like running away from New York to Newark. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It's not far away. Or Jersey City. And on the other hand, once you're in the German side of the border, you can't get drafted by the Russians. That's how it goes. A lot of people did it. Now, because Memel was a border town, you had very interesting community there of Jews, about 2,000, not many. Half were Yekas and half were Litvish. The Litvish who were there were businessmen who were allowed by the Germans to reside there precisely because they're contributing to the economy by doing a lot of import-export business, especially German exports into Russia. So since it's good for the German economy, you had a Litvish community there. That is why Rousseau Solanter spent a fair amount of time in Memel in the 1800s because of the Litvaks. It, what I'm trying to say is it's almost like part of Lithuania. It's just over the board. That's where our hero was to escape the draft. Now, the thing is like this. Uh, the story goes, I mean, I don't know if the story goes, it could be true, probably is, that when he was in Memel, so first of all, the Litvish over there, as the Germans, are, if anything, termed der Herz, if anything. In other words, they were, I would say, observant, but they wanted their children to have a good secular education. And there wasn't much in Memel by way of a quality Torah education. Okay? Our hero is in Memel, and he's starting to figure out how to do what all these Jews did, which is go to the United States. These are the peak years when hundreds of thousands, every year 100,000 in the first decade of the 20th century went to America. That's 100,000. Okay? That's a huge number. And he was going to do it and become a rabbi or something like that. But he met, the story is, that he met a Hasidic Chabad guy there, and the Chabad guy told him, who, if I remember correctly, was influenced by Israel Salanter or something like that. It's a wonderful story. Knows it's a Lubavitch guy who was under the Hashpo, if I remember correctly, Israel Salanter or somebody like that. Right? It's, uh, it's funny. And he basically said to our hero, who you could tell was the very idealistic type. He's very from, extremely idealistic. And th- by that I mean he wanted to do things like Shem Shemayim. In other words, he's trying to copy the Chavetz Chaim. That was his hero. And as you and I know, that is who the Chavetz Chaim was. Okay? That is who the Chavetz Chaim was. Yeah, the Lubavitch guy was influenced by the Altar of Kelm. So that's a great story by itself, in terms of crossing the borders. Incidentally, Dessler, you know, Dessler, who's a Kelmer, is into Chabad, right? You get it? There's this uh, Iruv Tchumen uh, is interesting. And he basically said, like this, what do you want to be another rabbi for? You should go be Mizaka to rabbi to the degree you can. And for some reason, that hit him. And the result was, they decided to devote the rest of his life to Chinuch, uh, and making yeshivas. Now, it's very interesting historically because we're dealing now with the first decade of the 20th century. And if we look back in retrospect, we'll see that the Litvish yeshiva had formed and crystallized by 1900. And then starting around 1900, it already became something of a missionary movement. Many people do not know this. I saw that my good friend's farm chatter has on today the guy who wrote the book of uh, the Golden Age of Lithuanian Yeshivas, Professor Klebanski. We did a good job. 
And he's writing about the Lithuanian yeshivas, you know, I guess in the 20s and 30s. But he has a background. And if you don't know the subject well, and most people don't, that's the book to read. I would say nowadays. Just came out. And um, no, it was the English edition came out. And already, I would say starting around 1900 or so, they were already Ufarapsa Yamava came at Safonov and Egba. That the literature yeshivas, who were not unaware of the fact that they were the sole institution, certainly in the non Hasidic world, that was capable of make, holding on to the allegiance of young people and convincing them to stay firm in the teeth of all the modern culture and European uh, civilization, which was sweeping the world. You have no idea how powerful this was prior to the First World War, because the First and Second World War killed the romance of this. The world was a great place in 1914. Every day and every way, things are getting better and better. It's like Disneyland with that progress of, man, you know, they really were making progress, young Valila, and they hadn't broken down any big wars, and things were getting more civilized, and the Europeans ruled the whole world, and the economies were really, they had their issues, but they basically were tremendously prospering, and the money was good around the world, and there was no crisis, and so things were great. So you could say that the Lithuanian, I'm sorry, the European culture is delivering Yimosa Mashiach right here and now. After all, what do you need? Peace, prosperity. You know, the Rambam, I always like to say, the Rambam says, there are people who are idiots who think that the impossible is possible. They think at the time of Mashiach, you know, uh, you can just grow things on trees and eat them right there. That you can go to a store and just buy baked goods. <laughs> you know, things like that. You'd be able to walk into a store and buy a whole suit. <laughs> well, you know, we are way past that. So the Ram lived in the 12th century. His idea of material prosperity around the time of Shia was a joke compared to what he already had at the beginning of the 20th century. You see? And it was only getting better. And so, a lot of people, even from sell like this, Moody Kodesh is okay, but you got to get a goodly Moody education anyway. That's the culture you want to be familiar with. Now, our hero had zero Moody wasn't interested. He's a more Chavetz Chaim type guy. I'm talking about the Chavetz Chaim, not the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva. We throw Mayor Hakon Aradin. And they're all anti-Western culture and so forth, uh, which was wreaking havoc among masses of Jews. And therefore, he basically wants not Torm Derech but Torah Bli I would say that would be the slogan of his life if there was such a thing. Somebody was a champion of Torah Bli Derech Torah only. And so... He, growing up in that world, saw very early on, and this is a real godless in his part, talking about the first decade of the 20th century, whatever's going to happen in the 20th century, wherever fate will, will cast them, the only thing that works to, number one, keep people from, and number two, make people from. They say, it seemed almost impossible at that time. I'll tell you right now, the from people say like this, whoever is not off the derrick yet, maybe we can hold on to Whoever's already gone off the derech, forget it. Kol ba'elo yeshuvin zuminas. You know, if somebody came down from, it's a snowball's chance in hell, the guys are going to come back. And here's our hero, so like this. You don't give up anybody, and that's only a sign of lack of confidence in our own program. And if you have a yeshiva in the right way, 
and make this appeal and that appeal, you can bring a lot of them back. This was like really unheard of at that time. And so the long and the short of it is, do I ask anybody anything? He said, I'm going to make a Yeshiva here memo. Now, the guy was broke. And, uh, you know, he didn't have Bachar or anything like that. But he started. The Jews, the local Jews, you know, weren't crazy about it. But all of his life, wherever he was, he was in a situation where he dealt with, I would say, Orthodox Jews using the word Orthodox very widely. Traditional Jews who were opposed to his programs, but nevertheless had a good Jewish guilt guilt complex. So he could, like, pound on that. And so here you are in Memel, where the parents want their kids to have a good public school education. Of course, they should be <coughs> observant as well. There's a guy who says, I'm starting an afternoon program, <coughs> so school's over at 2, from 2 to 4, eventually 2 to 6, eventually 2 to 8, we'll have yeshiva-type learning. And not only that, but he's going to go and talk to each boy, say he should really drop out of public school. See? It's not what the parents wanted. They got angry at him, so forth. But he developed early on what they call hishtavus, which means, you know, like the Navarticus did later on. Very much like a Navarticus type, which is you, you learn to display, uh, what's the right word? Uh, no emotion uh, at the criticism. You don't let the criticism get to you at all. You mean impervious criticism. Because I know I'm right, and if everybody else says I'm wrong, they're all wrong. That's it. There's nothing to talk about. Okay? Um, along the way, he wrote back and forth. It, the story is, he wrote to all the gadolim and says, I'm looking for to get married. I don't have any money. I have no yichas. I have no position. Well, <laughs> he didn't get too many letters. Well, he got one from the Chafetz Chaim son-in-law. Chafetz Chaim knew him. And they proposed uh, a girl who was a, a Yisoma. And he said, you know, I'm only interested in marrying a girl if she's willing to live paspa melech tochel by memsur tishta, and the main thing should be the yeshiva that we're going to build together. And so, in other words, I'm only interested in somebody's in for mysterious nefesh. And that's who he got. You know, so don't ask me for jewelry and so forth. And he started the yeshiva there. Now, how did he start yeshiva? The answer is, I, I rent a, a room, and I, say, and I say I'm in business. And I start with one guy, however long that takes, and then I go to two guys. And after I have two guys, I go to three guys, and to four guys, and so forth. It's that way, you see? It's that way. And he was already doing this in the years just before the first world war. <clears throat> They actually started to build something up. Now, he even got guys who were running away from Poland, you know, running away from the Russian army. He says, listen, you're over the border anyway. Here in Prussia, come to my yeshiva, you know. Now, obviously, I'm sure, throughout his life, for every 10 guys he talked to, probably seven or eight turned him down. But two did not turn him down. Even if you talk to 100 people and you get one, that means if I talk to 1,000 people, I get 10. That means if I talk to 10,000 people, I get 100. It's that way of thinking, which most of us aren't ready to do. You see? That's what makes such an interesting character. Yeah. He had this iron will, and he's very from. And the point is, it's not making a yeshiva in the style of Slobodka or Kamenitz or uh, Tells or something like that, which is an elitist institution. But on the contrary... What you're doing is you're taking in guys that ordinarily wouldn't end up in yeshiva in the first place. And you know that unless they go to yeshiva, they're not going to be from. Now, your main goal is to make them from, 
which means a lot of Musa schmoozes and a lot of uh, Yerushalayim stuff, but also plenty of learning. Okay? The Musa is his pilot, you know, screaming and all that. But also plenty of learning. And from every 10, 20 guys, like I said, <clears throat> one of them will be very good in Gemara. Maybe 19 won't be good in Gemara, but the rest of their life they'll be from, they'll learn Bishnai, so, you know, whatever. You know? And again, I say, if every 20 guys, one is good in Gemara, then if I have 200 guys, you see, then I have 10 good in Gemara. If I have 2,000 guys, then I have 200 good in Gemara. You understand that way of operating. So it's very interesting. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> he was in Memel, but he wasn't a German citizen. Uh, the First World War broke out in 1914. And Memel was actually in the front line for a short while. The Russians invaded East Prussia and they got in a certain amount, and then the Germans wiped them out. It's called the Battle of Tannenberg. But even so, the whole life went upside down because of the war zone. And being that he wasn't a Russian citizen, him is what? I'm sorry, he was a Russian citizen, him and his wife. Uh, so they were imprisoned as enemy aliens. Now, this is interesting. We're dealing here with the First World War and not the Second. In the First World War, it was the Kaiser's Germany, not Hitler. And in the First World War, I would even, I would even go so far as to say that the Torim Derech Eretz Jews, Yankees, had a certain influence with the German government, which they cultivated very assiduously, especially Rabbi Ezra Munk in Berlin, but he wasn't the only one. And so they made it their business to know the German officials. And they said, I think they're very good at the lobbying. Discreet, but effective lobbying. And one of the things they did was to try to get people like our hero out in the bed to say, listen, this guy's a rabbi. He's not a um, enemy spy or anything like that. He's just a very, very firm type guy. No politics whatsoever. And so they moved him from this place to that place to that place until they finally let him go. It took three years. And wherever he was, this amazing guy, wherever he was with his family, he immediately says, okay, I'm in some kind of refugee camp or a semi-prison. Let's organize a minion. Let's organize a, a, a shir. Let's organize yeshiva, learning classes. Let's let's organize the kashrus better. Let me get special men from the German uh, wardens to, to to help with the shechita. It was you know uh, indefatigable. It's it, you could tell a whole story just by that itself. He moved from this place, this place, to finally Diekis got him out because, uh, in other words, by 1917 they say you're free, you, you live wherever you want, uh, because everybody knew in Germany, the Jews are not Russian spies. They're not pro-Russia. All the Jews wanted Russia to lose. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? The Jews wanted Russia because there was a Tsar Nicholas II there's an anti-Semit. His soldiers massacred and raped and killed you know, right and left all the Jews. Everybody wanted the Germans to win. So you don't really have to worry about a Jew. This is interesting. See, even the German bureaucracy eventually was minded to that. Uh, but meanwhile, his frameworks all kept getting shredded. So he moved to Frankfurt. Isn't that interesting? In 1917, he moved to Frankfurt. Frankfurt is the headquarters of the Breuer Kehla. Frankfurt is also headquarters of the non-Breuer Kehla. You know, I'm, I'm sure everybody here, 95% of my listeners know that you had the Hirsch split in the 19th century between the Austrian Gemeinde and the, and the other Gemeinde, the, the general Gemeinde. Which means that there were two uh, commu Jewish communities in Frankfurt. Uh, one of those was like Hungary, 
was the Hershian one, in which they said we we uh, secede, we treat ice, we secede from the general community because it's not from. So therefore, we make our own JCC. Obviously, we make our own shuls and schools and cemeteries, and all the rest of it. Make our own hospital. You know, anything Jewish has to be from. If it's not, then it's not Jewish. But there were many from Jews who disagreed with that. Hirsch could not get most of his shul to join his, his society. And so people even who died by the Herschel, later by the Breuer Shul, which is one and the same, uh, were members and dues-paying members of the general community, which included the Reform, the Conservative, and all this stuff. And so, for our purposes, there were two Orthodox synagogues and two Orthodox day schools or sets of day schools, uh, you know, competing with each other. And there are even two yeshivas, small, right? So, for example, Rav Breuer, who was the successor of Hirsch, had something called the Breuer's Yeshiva. Didn't have a lot of guys, but, you know, went on for many years. and was run Hungarian style, with the Shir Pasha and the Shirian and the Chavaz Havaz class and all that, the Yeridei class. That's where Rav Breuer from Washington Heights taught. And then you had the other yeshiva, which was set up, I don't want to get too much into this, by the first guy who was the Orthodox rabbi of the general community, uh, Rabbi Marcus Horowitz. It was the son-in-law of, you know, of Darkland there. So that was, so you had two yeshivas. Again, not big. And our guy moved in, Ramosha Schneider, as a war refugee, it's not even German, <clears throat> he basically says, I'm going to set up an East European yeshiva, literature yeshiva, to appeal to a different element. Meaning, <clears throat> the two yeshivas in Frankfurt, which were not YU, it was just in Woody Kodesh. Okay? However, you could go to college too. That's what they did. They do college courses as well. So, you know, de facto, part of the day was in Woody Kodesh, and part of the day, the students pursued their secular education. Who were the students in these yeshivas? <clears throat> Two types. Uh, Yakis, not many. Most German Jews at that time didn't want their kids to go to yeshiva. They wanted to be Shomer Shabbos, but they wanted to go in business, usually the family business or something like that. And they married the right girl. And they all have a a, a very fine Jewish family. The Oisel and Mephis. You know, Medoctic Bemitzvahs, all the rest of it. Not yeshivas. You know? Uh, Hirsch did not send up at yeshiva. Now, Rob Breuer did, and his opponents did, you know, the opposite numbers. So those were small Hungarian yeshivas. So a few of the boys were Yakis. Most of the boys were from Hungary, from Overland. Okay? Now, there weren't that many, but there were. If you want to read a very interesting autobiography of somebody from Hoberland who learned in the Breuer yeshiva a little bit later, it's Jacob Cast, a historian the Tel Aviv. I mean, in... In Hebrew, the famous Jacob Katz. He was in the 30s, I guess, 20s and 30s, a student in the Bore Yeshiva while he also went to college. So this was the situation. I'll tell you why I'm saying all this. So none of the Yeshivas had what we would call Litvish, Polish. You see? Or in Germany, they call them Eastern European Jews, Ostjuden. That element wasn't there. But there were plenty of Eastern European Jews in Frankfurt and elsewhere in Germany. You probably don't know this, but the Hirsch Kehillah, which had money, 
actually operated two day schools, A and B. One was for the Yekas, boys and girls. And then another one was for the East European Jews. Why two day schools? They figured they don't mix class-wise, get it? These are Germans, these are refugees, beneath their dignity. Right or wrong, uh, Mordechai Breuer, in his book, Modernity Within Tradition, has all about this. <clears throat> and the Yekis were, were sufficiently uh, generous, I'll put it, if that's the right word. They funded two schools. <clears throat> Basically, what you think is like this. I'm willing to pay for another day school that'll take all the kids I don't want to be in my kids' class and put them over there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's a certain racism. Okay? It's a certain racism. It's equivalent to somebody like this. I'll pay money. There should be a school. All the black kids should go to that school. They won't be in my kids' class. It's a certain racism. You know what I'm saying? This was Jew on Jew. Be that as it may, our hero, moving from Eastern Europe to Frankfurt, when the First World War is still on, he says, Rav <clears> Chashavakli, <throat> there's still, there's no place, <clears throat> there's no um, opportunities, there's a niche here for yeshiva, for Eastern Pindu, my kind of guys, the ones Litvisha, Pailisha, talk our kind of Yiddish, and so forth. And so he, after a year or two, he set up a yeshiva in Frankfurt, again, always starting small but growing, Taurus Emes, and the idea was, this will be a Litvishi Shiva in the heart of Yaki land. This is not unique. I told you before, <clears throat> I should really give a talk on this. Lithuanian Shiva, as a, as a model, kind of became somewhat missionary around the turn of the century. And this was true <clears throat> prior to the First World War in the greater Russian Empire, so it was outside of Litvishi territory. They moved to Volinia, to the Ukraine, places like that. And after the First World War, you find a number of attempts to set up literature-type yeshivas in Central and Western Europe, which had never been Lithuania, because of the general perception that this is a model that works. Okay, This is a model that works. That's why you have the yeshiva in Montreux in Switzerland. Uh, you know, Hunter Wasserman's son, what was it, and the other guy... Made one in Strasbourg, you know. Um, uh, there was one in Hyde in, in Belgium. Gateshead, I'm sure you know. You see what they all have in common? They're taking a specific Matbea, the Litvishi Shiro, with its special characteristics and trying to plant it uh, in other places. Uh, what's the name? Amir, Rabbi Amir, I mentioned the other day, had one in Antwerp. Now, there, that's not everywhere. Many communities, they did not have it. But you generally see that had Hitler not arisen, it stands to reason that more and more of these literature-type yeshivas would have popped up here and there in all the Western European countries. It's a very interesting phenomenon. So our hero did one smack in the middle of Yekiland. Not in the same way, because he didn't come across as some aristocratic and they bring him in a rich Balabatim and they set up a, a classy place. The whole idea of literature yeshiva was it should have a, a cachet. It should have an elitism to it. Shtadi. Um, it's, it's a Jewish equivalent of Harvard and Yale. Whereas our hero was coming from bottom up 
You want to take kids that more like Navardic style in the 20s and 30s. They went for assignment. They went for kids who didn't have anywhere to go. Sometimes losers. Sometimes this, that, and the other. And you bring them in yeshiva, and in the highest sense of the word, you inspire them with the Ruch Torah and Yerushalayim, a lot of Musr, but also you push the Hasmala. And like I said, you know, from this will grow. From this will grow. And it's already not, you know, it's not the, like I said, it won't have the prestige. So I learned the Voloshan, I'm a graduate of Slobodka, blah, blah, blah. That is true. But if you care about the Yerushalayim side, and you care, and I'll say again, and you want to know, let me put it this way. Plenty of people who are big around bottom came through this. Right? And so this is an episode I bet you a lot of people don't know. Which was, there was a religious yeshiva, and he had to raise the money himself. All through the 20s and 30s, down to 1939. Uh, in the heart of Yekiland. So that means that if you lived in Frankfurt in the 20s and 30s, there were actually three yeshivas going on there. A, B, and C. There was the Broyers. There was the other one from the Gemeinde Rabbi, first Rabbi Nobel, and then Rabbi Hoffman. And then there's our hero. Then there's this Torah Samus Literation place. But it's not, it, let me put it this way, it opposes Torah Derek Hertz. That's why I don't think there were any Yekish students there. They're all students from Poland and those kind of places where people running away from the Polish draft and from Lithuania, who knows what. That kind of thing. And there you had it. Um, I, the Yekis, held their nose and they said, this is not what it should be. It's not Hershey and all the rest of it. That is true. And they did hold their nose and they criticized it, but they contributed because that's the Yekish of virtues. They contributed. He could raise the money. Now, then came, this would be the rest of his life, except Hitler rose to power in 1933, and that already created a new reality. But, you know, what's the expression? Um, from crack lemons, you make a lemonade. So, what happened in 1933 is, when Hitler came to power, they expelled all these kids from Germany because Hitler said, we have enough trouble with German Jews. All foreign Jews who are not having German citizenship, not born here, get out. And so, his yeshiva more or less disappeared because of that. But, on the other hand, listen to this. <clears throat> Hitler, in the first phase, on to about 33 to 39, as I just mentioned the other day, did not launch a holocaust. He didn't kill anybody. Right? Instead, he tried to bring back the ghetto. Jews can't do this. Have to wear a special garb, a gold star, I mean a yellow star. Have to live, you know, can't buy property. Uh, they get fired from all the jobs. You know, that sort of thing. Uh, and so one of the things is the, Jew, the German, the Jewish kids get kicked out of public schools. So you can say, that's terrible, it's a discrimination. Our hero said, I guess, oh, it's a good opportunity for me. <laughs> so he went into a lot of these Yakish kids and said, listen, they're kicking out of public school anyway, or they're making it hard or something like that. Come learn by me. I won't get a secular education. Heck with the secular education. Or, if you want, tell me your... See, he had, in, in the environment I'm talking about, he had to be practical. There were simply a lot of kids... They said, we're going to go to public school. Okay. So let's work at a a, 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 a shear 
you know, a, a Seder after school. You know, like I said before, from 2 to 6 or 3 to 8 or 3 to 9. And Sunday mornings you can do it. And the Shabbos we can have it. Those you stop around wherever you can. And therefore, this is like the third iteration. First, it was a memo. Then it was in Frankfurt with the East European Jews. And now it's in Frankfurt with the Yekishin kids. And the Hitler uh, rise to power obviously shocked the Germans to their core, German Jews. <clears throat> they thought Berlin is Yerushalayim and so forth. They felt themselves German. Now they saw they weren't. And this actually made it good for our hero because he was able to get to some kids and turn them into BTs in the 1930s when it was very hard. These are kids from families that were, no, were not from and were not Shomer Shabbos, all the rest of it, and they flipped by getting involved with him. So it's amazing that at the uh, jaws of hell, like the Bnei Korach, you know, at the jaws of hell, he's working and running yeshiva in Frankfurt, which actually was growing with Yekish students because of the peculiar circumstances of the Hitler regime. Um, and, you know, it got worse and worse as the 1930s proceeded, but nevertheless, he held on. Now, when it came really late, in 39, he was kicked out of, of Germany. So what can he do? So um, he wanted to go back to Poland. Poland won't let you back in. Poland said, we have enough trouble with our Jews. And so he ended up going to England. That's the story. So let me see. started in Lithuania, ended up in Memo, then in Frankfurt, after those DP, after those detention camps in World War One. And now Frankfurt went to London. This is in the 39, just before the war. The British government, many people don't know this, probably in England they do. The Chamberlain government, Neville Chamberlain, um, is the one that signed the Munich Pact with Hitler. But they knew that they had done something not right. And I think they had a certain guilty conscience to a certain degree. And therefore, in 38, 39, they landed a bunch of Jews into England, including a lot of from Jews. Uh, as I say, this is not so well known. You know, Neville Chamberlain's father was the one who offered Uganda to Herzl. You know, so he didn't come from a, what I call, anti-Semitic background in the classical sense. I remember Chamberlain had a secretary of war. The War Department was under a Jewish guy. And it's just an interesting story. And the Home Secretary, Samuel Hoare, who's usually considered one of the arch appeasers of Hitler, which was true in the late 30s, but he kind of came to see that he was wrong. And I don't know the details, but I've seen over here, but what's his name got to him? Uh, Rabbi Schoenfeld. And they were able to bring a lot of guys over. And it's quite a story, you know, because Schoenfeld would go to the um, home office. He said, we want to bring this guy over. Mm. Under what? category, you know, we already have enough tailors here, all the rest of it. This guy's that census maker. There aren't any census makers in England. Okay. No, like that. And he got our hero in. And as soon as he came to England, he said, okay, we're going to start a yeshiva here. You see what I'm saying? In other words, you never let yourself get knocked down by the wave. You always pick yourself up. Which is quite a story. Because in 1939, things were terrible for the Jews. And he got there just when the war's about to begin. He landed in London. I remember he set up a yeshiva right away in some little house with one student, you know. And then he got some of his students, um, he got the home office to allow some of his students from Frankfurt to get to England. 
and there were some other kids from Czechoslovakia, Vienna. They got them in, and next thing you know, he has the yeshiva, 70, 80 guys in London, 1939, 1940. It's the Blitz. You see? And he ran a yeshiva in London, England, during the war. Now, who does he get? Our, to say the word dregs of society is the wrong word, but not entirely. He got kids from Chashua families, like Sternbach. They also got kids from the opposite side of the tracks. And there are many stories that, you know, he would ever go and, and talk to a kid who maybe was in the underworld, you know, uh, or was, uh, you know, living a uh, reprobate life. And, you know, and he would work on the guy and talk to him and talk to him and talk to him and try to win him over. And eventually he would. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people he did not. But he, you know, his slogan was never say die. There's a famous story. I remember Saransky have it that, um, what do you call it? That there was some kid, that Ravi Schneider was talking to somebody in the street and some kid, very close to the big way, went, whistled, and he said, hey, come here, Rabbi. And he did. And the, and the guy who was talking to him says, where's your cover of terror? You let some little yucks like that make you go across the street and then have the time. And he said, remember, the advice of Rechavam, meaning when Rechavam and Yerovam, what is the question when the people said, you know, given our demands, and the wise counselors of King Solomon said, if you're there ever today, you'll be the Melch tomorrow. So I'm willing to walk across the street and talk to the kid. Eventually, I'll get him. And he did. You see? So in other words, he's very unusual because what I'm describing was not done by the Altar of Slobodka, by the Pontiff of Jerov, Barabon Cutler, you know, they, they ran a different system. And they ran a different way. They weren't into chasing after BTs and trying to flip people. But Ramosha Schneider was. That's why he's not, he was a literature in Rosh Hashiva, and he insisted everybody talk Yiddish and all the rest of it, but not the same way the others were. He was his own model, uh, more of the Chavetz Chaim way. Even the Chavetz Chaim wasn't exactly that way either, but more the Chavetz Chaim way. And he ran, and I remember they had all kinds of adventures. <clears throat> uh, you know, half the students in the yeshiva in the beginning were actually from Germany and Austria. Well, the British Home Office, when the war started, it's like this, enemy aliens. And I'm sure there are people in England listening to this right now whose relatives, especially Yankees, you know, had to spend time, I remember Rabbi Elias was on, in like British concentration camps, get it? For enemy aliens, because that was mindless bureaucracy. All those in Britain who were Germans were rounded up as possible dangerous people and put into special detention camps, World War II. Well, if he's a guy, I get it, but why a Jew? Well, he's born in Germany, so that makes him a German. It took a while for the British to get in their heads, you know, that these Jews are different. And some of these guys were deported to uh, Canada, Australia. I read this um, book, I think I told you, not long ago I bought that um, big, fat book, which is supposed to be a translation of Meshachachma. It's okay. But the autobiographical part was great because the guy came to London from Frankfurt and then was deported to Australia. You get it? And was in a concentration camp in Australia uh, until, you know, conditions eased. Like I say, eventually the Allied powers got it. What's tragic is that Rabbi Schneider kept up with all these students when they went to... He, he said, if you're going to Australia, set up a yeshiva in Australia, like I did. If you're going to Canada, make a yeshiva there. 
I don't know anything. Whatever you know, teach to others and build it up. He was an extremely idealistic person. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. I don't want to get too schlepped into it. Just to give me an idea of who he was. Now, here's somebody. Uh, oh, yeah. When they when the government deported these guys, he lost most of the guys in Yeshiva. So he sent out guys from Yeshiva to go draw others, including... Um, there were young guys, British kids, who uh, were working on defense installations, like helping build up army bases and sandbags and things like this. And you know, you know, Rabbi Schneider said, "I guess what are you wasting time to disguise yourself? Come and learn Torah." <laughs> you know, and the authorities didn't like it. And other Jews said he's a traitor, and he's bad news. They should be deported. The Jews said that. You know, listen, me come Israel. I'm sorry to say it. Um, and he was going to get deported. Maybe even locked up. As somebody who's, who's damaging the war effort. You know? This is the Churchill government. They didn't have no time to play games. The Germans were at the front door. England had to be very tough. The only thing is, Chief Rabbi Hertz saved him. He went to the British authorities, who he knew well. You know, the Hertz Chumash. And he said like this, He's not an enemy alien. He's not an enemy of England. He's just Meshuggah from and explain what he means by that. In Meshuggah from. In England, you say somebody's religious eccentric. It's not so bad. They're used to that. And so they say, oh, he's a religious eccentric. All right, let him alone. <laughs> it's quite a story. Now, he would say like this. It's a Hashkacha Pratis. Hashkacha Pratis. Because he, he couldn't get himself out. Only Hertz could get him out of it. Uh, but imagine what Jews were going to do him in. Anyhow... So here you are trying to build a yeshiva in the middle of the war. It's not in Gateshead, which is away from the bombing. It's in London, which was heavily bombed. And so uh, you had to be really tough. And it was. Uh, this is when, this is the London of, Ches- of Cheskel Abramsky, of Hertz, you know, of, the, of that era. Now, again, here's a guy who's just monomaniacal. He said like this, the world is on fire, and the Holocaust is going on, and the Blitz is here, and armies moving everywhere. But I don't care about any Galatia stuff. I want to build up a yeshiva. And, you know, again, with the heavy schmoozes and the intense learning. I mean, it really is quite gripping to think this bombing is going on. And here's one building where the guy's saying this, we have to double our Hasmodel and double our Yerushalayim. It's, it's, it's actually quite interesting. Okay. Now, um, I remember eventually they had to move to Manchester. For years, I didn't know why. But then I found out. In '44, Hitler switched to the V1 and V2. In other words, from 40, 41, 42, 43, down to the middle of 44, the German Air Force bombed London, the Luftwaffe. So the British Air Force, the RAF, fought him off. So that was bad enough. It was bad enough. You know, waves of bombers coming over. But to tell you the truth, it got harder and harder after the Battle of Britain in 1940. It got harder and harder for Hitler to send over heavy bombs all the time to London. They did to some degree, but it wasn't so easy. However, in '44, Hitler's scientists invented what we call today the guided missile, the Scud missile. It's exactly what happened there in Israel in the wars 
starting with Saddam Hussein when he shot those Scud missiles at Tel Aviv and all that. And then in the other war, and then uh, now the Hamas is doing it. You know, and the Hezbollah. You send rockets. They send them up, they come down, and they blow up whoever they blow up. So this is Hitler's way of trumping the RAF. You can't shoot them down for the most part because they're going too fast and you don't see them coming. And so everybody got scared out of their mind. They all pitched in their pants in 1944. I don't blame them a bit because you're walking, 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 and all of a sudden you hear this, hear woo, and then boom, and it might land on you. So simply, the terror was terrible. And that's the V1. The V2, which Hitler perfected, didn't even make a noise. So I could be walking, and then boom. So I could take my, drop my kids off in school in the morning, and the school could blow up. Or my bus could blow up on the way back. Or my house could blow up when I'm not there. Or anything like that. It freaked out the British. And I don't know what would happen. You know, it's Minas that Hitler did not invent this earlier, let's say in 42, 43. I don't know if London could have handled it. This is a parsha not most people are not familiar with today. The good news here was that Hitler perfected it right around the time of D-Day. So in other words, um, around June of 44, that's when he came up with these weapons, which he called the V-1 and the V-2. Uh, I forget what it stands for, revenge or something. And that's exactly when the Allied armies landed in, in France. And the launching sites had to be close. So it had to be in Belgium, France and Belgium, near the coast. And that is what the Americans and the British <coughs> were able to take over. So, so practically speaking, from June to September, October, something like that, of 44, it was hell. But by the time you get to October, it's all over. Because... The Allied soldiers have conquered the areas that the Germans needed to be able to shoot those those rockets. So if somebody like Schneider felt so bad they got to move the yeshiva to Manchester, it must have been really bad, you see. And then the war was over. And then starts another Parsha. Because the war was over. So again, most people say, I guess, woe is us. You know, Carrying this cover. Ugh, six million dead. All which is true. Not Schneider. He said, I guess, okay. Now it's the newest challenge. Let's get the DPs, the, the orphan kids, the kids that have been, you know, abandoned by their families. The families were killed. These are Jewish children. We have to rescue them. And not only rescue them, we have to from them out. We have to go and bring them to a life of Torah and so forth. That is where. Uh, Zev Radin's father, Alex Radin, who's the Arts State, comes in the story. Because this is exactly a typical story. Uh, he was from Poland, Zev's father, born in 34, so work it out. And he survived the war only by the parents gave him to a Geisha family, that kind of thing. You know? His father was killed, but his mother survived the war. And so they would collect him after the war. But he grew up, you know, with no knowledge of Yiddishkeit because he had, you know, been forced to prevaricate and hide in that way. There were many kids like this. And they found out you could get to England and go to this guy. Well, what happened was Rabbi Solomon Schoenfeld, who I never spoke about, 
who, let's put it this way, he's a hero of the hot soul. He was a strange guy, but he's a hero of the hot soul. And he came to Poland. This is what uh, uh, Zed's father wrote. And he said, uh, put an ad in the paper. Here, let me read it. Because uh, it's interesting. After the, I'm reading what Zed's father wrote, because you'll see how it intersects with our hero. After the war, the communists took over, and my mother tried to make a living, couldn't make anything back we had owned before the war. She knew there was no future in Poland. They wouldn't let her out, but it was easier to get the children out. Rabbi Schoenfeld from London came to Warsaw wearing a British uniform with two tablets, a tag on his uniform. No, it was Jewish. He put an ad in the Polish newspaper saying he represented British Jewry. Rabbi Schoenfeld was the son-in-law of Hertz. Okay? And he was looking for orphans who survived the war and would pay for any orphans brought to him. <laughs> he knows he's dealing with the Polish. Huh? It's, it's cash, baby. You bring me a Jewish kid, it's cash. My mother saw this as an opportunity to get me out of Poland. We were late for the ship. You know, this is Rabbi Schoenfeld's ship. But then an, another orphan didn't show up. So Dr. Schoenfeld gave me the orphan's name and told me to walk on the ship's plank and pretend to be the other kid. I was 13 with no father. I left my mother and sister not knowing if I would see them again. And then they set sail from from uh, Germany. And he came to London in 1947. Now listen to this. Came in 47. We disembarked in Edinburgh in Scotland and were sent by train to London. We arrived in Charing Cross Station on a Friday night. So it's Friday night and they're going to get on buses. You see? Friday night. And these are a bunch of kids, orphans from the war. And now they're going to be ice to tail. They're going to be divided up. Some go this way, some go that way. All these years I had lived with a Christian family and I had forgotten what Shabbos was. Rabbi Schneider's son from Yeshiva Torah Samus, Gedalia Schneider, was waiting there even though it was Shabbos. In other words, it's far away from his neighborhood. And they're going to bring all the kids back on a bus. And he said there's like a certain pikuch nefesh spiritually. And so he's going to take them on the bus to the front place. They randomly divided us into three groups. I happened to be in the group the Rabbi Schneider took. Other kids went to Rabbi Schoenfeld's school, so that'll be, you know, Hasmonean. And a third group ended up in a secular Jewish school. Rabbi Schneider, so since we were in the group, so Schneider's son immediately told us kids, take the coins out of your pockets. In other words, welcome to Shabbos. This was my reintroduction to Shabbos and the life of Yiddishkeit now that the war was over. During the second Shabbos at the yeshiva, they asked everybody, who's 13 years old? I raised my hand with another three boy, four boys. They called us up to the Torah for Aliyah, and they said, this is the Bar Mitzvah. You know, thinking of, they put us under a chuppah, they made a bracha, and I got a, a set of f- paired film. So I'm simply saying that's a that's a hands-on example of how he operated after the war, which is now the emphasis is on the DPs, the kids who survived the war, the orphans, the broken families. My brother, Olshamistanel, had a friend Gluck. He also went through the Schneider thing after he was an orphan from Hungary. And Rabbi Schneider sent his son-in-law to Hungary in forty-seven to round up kids like this. So basically, what you're doing is you're taking the jetsam and flotsam of whoever survived the war. And you're saying, but each one is a Jewish kid, different. Somebody we want to work on, and you know it's, it's worth saving. And I don't care what country you're from, and come to London, the push for our place. We ain't going to live high in the hog. There's not a lot of food or anything like that, you know. 
But there's enough. There's a basic amount. And that means that he had to go and raise all the money himself. Uh, because I can tell you right now, this was not the type of yeshiva that the British Jews were comfortable with. That's an understatement. You had to know how to sell it right. You know, Schoenfeld was good at that. But I wouldn't say our hero was good at that. Plus, it's very famous. He said he didn't want a board of directors or committee because then they'll start giving ideas of what the yeshiva should be like. And he's, I'm not interested in anybody's, you know, any Englishman's opinion of what the yeshiva should be like because I don't like England. Hear what I say? He said, I don't like England. We're here. We're taking advantage of it. But that's not where we want to be. And so, in other words, I'll say it again. This was not a place for secular studies. You understand? <clears throat> Excuse me. And so the result is that he had to swim against the current to build a yeshiva, to, to recruit the kids, to bring them over, to raise the money for everything, food, clothing, shelter. And he did. And he cared about each kid. So in other words, this kid might need extra money for this. Or that, especially after the Holocaust, you can imagine the emotional type situations. And he is bombarding them with these very heavy schmoozes and this ear shaman himself and godless Batoro. Uh, again, it, it really is quite a story. Uh, here, let me just up for a second. Hi, <clears throat> oh, yeah, I had to interrupt it for a minute. But what I was saying was that he had to do everything himself, which is quite a story. And um, obviously that ruined the health. You know, that's how these things go. Uh, now, I always wonder, you know, so, and he kept the yeshiva in London until he died. Uh, he didn't want to go to Eretz Yisrael, apparently. He was super anti-Zionist. I think, if I remember correctly, he was like Satmer, you know what I'm saying? Which is just interesting, you know. That was his, uh, very stark against Zionism and the state of Israel and all that. Which I remember people being, you know, Sternbach, who was a student, was like that. Uh, especially in the early years. Uh, but whatever the case is, he spent, I would say, 1945-1950 on the Alex Raiden types, on the TPs, displaced person, orphans from the war, that kind of thing. And then, in 1950, he was indefatigable. He was, he was He's like this. We got to do the Moroccans, this, this fired him. Okay? This is when the yeshiva world, the literature yeshivas, discovered North African jewelry. The truth is, there was a literature guy who already went in 1905 to Morocco, but that's for another. I don't want to go into that now. But de facto, there was nothing there. Morocco was an Arab country occupied by the French when, in 1912. Already around that time, very heavy French influence, which is secular and anti from uh, this is how it went wherever you had French influence in the three important North African Jewries. Moroccan Jewry, Algerian Jewry, Tunisian Jewry. Each one responded in its own way. And Morocco, you still had some from, uh, although the French did have a big impact, especially Rabbanim. And so, without going through all the details, a whole bunch of kids, the Toledanos, for example, you know, the one who wrote that really cool Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, Sephardi. I have it somewhere within the Kud. It's very good. In other words, it's not the regular kids, but it's in that style. It's mainly from Kafa Chaim and all that. Very good from Rabbi Toledano. I think Yaakov Toledano, I believe. Anyway, uh, they all learned there. Now, this is Schneider. You come to my yeshiva, 
You got to daven uh, Ashkenaz. You got to learn Yiddish. You got to you know talk uh, Litvish and so forth. That's he was that way. You see, he had his peculiarities. But whatever he was doing, you know, that's what that's what people saw was they did it because they thought it's the best way to go. And today would be considered culturally insensitive. But at that time, they thought the best you can do is brainwash these kids to be Litvish. Because then there'll be great Talmudic and they'll imitate what we did, which is to set up Litvish yeshivas and hopefully save the rest of the Jews. This is a very complicated story, and things are different these days because there's, in my opinion, a greater degree of racism in the from world and in the yeshivish world today than there was at that time. There's a greater degree, unfortunately, today than then. But this was, he started the business, him and Rabbi Kalmanovich in the mirror in, in Brooklyn to try to, quote-unquote, rescue these kids from Morocco, uh, mainly, and uh, from them out, and then they should go. I mean, the, uh, in my youth, I remember guys in Lakewood and elsewhere who were Moroccan, and they knew how to learn very well. Uh, but they were telling me to rub Schneer Cutler, things like that. And, you know, they're totally, they knew all the yeshiva shishprach and all the rest of it, with an accent, of course. And, um, you know, that was the system. But nevertheless, what's the reason? What's his idea? I'll train these kids, then they'll go back to Morocco and set up yeshivas and make a tchis amazim of Yiddish kind of Morocco. And then we'll spread it to Algeria. And then we'll spread it to here. In other words, he was indefatigable. Basically, life was one big battle against the Yitzhahara. One big battle to uh, push Torah back, you know, to restore it. As I said before, you know... Um, if you think it's too late, you're just giving in to the blandishments of the Yitzhar. There's there's a Gemara like that in the Pesach, I'm sorry, in Megillah, which always reminds Hold on one second. Yeah, here it is. It's in Megillah, above on the base, page 6. And very interesting, because this reminded me very much of Moshe Schneider. The Gemara says over there that if you see things that are on a roll in a bad way, if you see... That's an uh, you live at a time when the Rishon are just Matsliach everywhere. Altis Garbo, don't mess with them. Because God obviously wants this to happen. Dvar of Matslichin, Zochim Bedin, Rabbisanam, they're in a real role. But then the Gemara contrasts this with a different opinion. And it says, <coughs> here you go, Rabdustai Ber Masanomer, Mutter L Hiskaris Bershon Bomazeh. It's Mutter to battle the wicked in this hour. You notice, even if they're in a role, even if they're successful, if you quote me the Pasuk, which says, don't compete against the wicked and don't um, make trouble with the with the evildoers. Only a coward and a chicken takes that approach. Don't be like that. We should definitely fight them. So that was the Schneider. Wherever he was, as you see, he never found himself, like today, <laughs> I'd be out of a job today, you know. Now you have a from world. Let's say, for example, Israel, even England. You know, there's a big from island. It wasn't like that. At that time, to do these things, you know, you had to go against the stream, and you had to take up a lot of abuse. You had all these richy rich guys come and give you hell and so forth, and say, I'm not giving any more money, and this and that and the other, and cuss you out. He was born with a, a contempt for the rich. Chavetz Chaim even told him. Chavetz Chaim told him. He says, I'm going to find you a shidduch for a girl that's very poor. You'll like that. That's what he told him. 
But at the Chasanah, you know, he got married in Raden. His Chasanah, Chavetz Chaim told him like this. But don't be so anti-materialistic that you don't have a Parnosa. I think that's a very funny story. Chavetz Chaim telling the guy, you know, you have to think about your Parnosa. But you understand what I'm saying? He had no time for this materialism business. And he spent the last four years of his life working now on Project Morocco, Project Spartan. And uh, I think already by that time, English Suri started to make something of a dent. And they had a kolil already. They started to build up a yeshiva, like we would say to the yeshiva gadol. See, every yeshiva, even if it starts as a balchub yeshiva or something like that, the natural tendency is to eventually become elitist. And his yeshiva would have gone that route, I think. But, um, you know, we'll never know. I don't know what happened to it after his death. My understanding is that there's no yeshiva like this anymore. I asked Eitan Storfer earlier today. He said the kolil's there in London. The yeshiva's not, I don't know. I'm not in England. Uh, but he died from illness in nineteen, in December of 54, I think, or early 55. You know, when he wasn't old, <clears throat> an illness took him down. If he, the kind of guy he was, if he would have had his health for another 10, 20 years, well, let's say 70, he could have gone for another 10 years for sure. He would have made a big storm in England. <laughs> you know, let's put it this way. He'd have two gates heads. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He'd have two gates heads, as it were. I'm using the word gates head as a powerful dynamic force to push things to the right. There wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been two. Um, but he passed away when he passed away. So um, I did this today because it's unusual. See, he was a Litvish Rosh Hashiva. That is to say, he was Litvish, Mary Shiva. But not the same way the others did. They didn't have the same kind of elitism. You know, Zinka, kind of, yeah, he gave all the Shurim and all the rest of it, but that wasn't necessarily the Iker. The Iker was to build up the Yerushalayim to make Israel from, to one another in Torah Lishma, you know, in the, in the most intense and highest way, and to uh, play with people's minds. He would say, put the minds back on the right track. You know, saying, by him, the Iker thing was to get a hold of somebody's mind and put in the right path since the whole 20th century was about doing the opposite. So it was real. it's really a, a very unusual personality. <clears throat> and he had a lot of stories. I don't have time to go through all the stories. Last stories. By the way, I still remember uh, his wife, who he met was very from, Chavetz Chaim She, when her father died, she was a Yasoma in Raden, she said, Kaddish for the father and Shul. There's always a question, should the woman say Kaddish for Shul? And the Chavetz Chaim told her she should say Kaddish for her father, um, which was always interesting. And I remember another story also, which is uh, really cute, and that was that somebody said, you know, uh, you're putting yourself out too much, and you know, um, you're you're uh, lowering your dignity, and uh, you're going to extremes and things like this. Hold on, let me let me find it. Hold on a second. Okay, it took a while. I haven't seen this in many years. Here's Saraski. One second. Son of a gun, I still have it under online. <laughs> I still have it underlined from long ago. Listen, <laughs> can't believe it. Uh, it's before the highlight. Um, listen to this. Margali Bapule, so he used to tell over the following Misa, Bisrael Solanter. And, and by the way, this is written in a super from book. Marbita Torah Musser. This is as from as they get. 
Lesaper ech amar Yisrael Salanter Elisha. The Yisrael Salanter once said to his wife, to Mrs. Salanter, Kishehich mitzbenot v'nasa b'handis b'peterberg. One of his kids went off the derech, the uh, Israel Santos kids, and he became an engineer in Petersburg. I think this is a little bit wrong. I think it was really a, a mathematician in Berlin, but it doesn't matter. Um, so the Chavetz Chaim told his wife, Ki lilmod es rusis, that he told his wife, what you have to do, now you're going to be shocked at what I'm reading. He told her, what you have to do is you have to learn Russian. Lislabish um, Big de Goya, and dress in Goyesha fashion, for Linsola Petersburg, and to move to St. Petersburg, where Jews usually weren't allowed. Almanas Lahaskis Asmo Kimishar and to, um, armed with her Russian knowledge and her European dress, to get her, go get herself hired by her son as a, as a, as a, 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 a maid, a cook, a Masharis. Ulay b'derek zeb, because maybe that way, tashpik levashel b'adom achon k'sherin. You believe this? Maybe you'll get hired by our son, who's not from anymore, to be the cook in the kitchen, his kitchen, for tatzelenemis or nevelas atrefus, and you'll get him kosher food. And and so Rosh you say like this: you you twist yourself around, you turn the world upside down, just to get somebody else an extra mitzvah. So he was like I say, unusual in that way. And I hope now Zev and your family, Zev Ray and family, will understand the father's connection with as being one of the Schneider boys that was snatched up as an orphan in World War II. Alex Raiden eventually made it from London to New York. We ended up in Berlin. A whole bunch of stories. And that's why they're from. Because the people, especially in those years, if you had a Shiva education, you have a shot. If you didn't have a Shiva education, very rare that someone would stay Shomer Shabbos because the, the trend was all the way in the other direction. Uh, anyway, I've gone long enough with that. I'll thank the Raiden families, which the Neshama and Aliyah, and uh, I'll call it a day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot rabbi david katz dot com